There is a vulnerability. Even, I love that song, Rock of Ages. When it talks about Jesus, the Rock of Ages, cleft for me. There's a vulnerability in which Jesus allowed himself to be cut, right? He, he allowed himself to be cut. His skin opened, his blood poured out, and we hide within. The, 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 the words of the song talk about us hiding within that cleft rock, that cut rock. Under his wings, under him, we are hidden in Christ. It's such a beautiful song. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus allowed himself to be vulnerable, that he would even to the place of being cut, open, his blood spilled out, that we might have a place to hide in him. That is intimacy. That is love. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults. At Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Glad you're here. Yeah, Song of Solomon. Well, I want to read to you first from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And when we gather to God's word, we come in faith, believing that these were God's words, breathed out from heaven to the hearts and minds of his servant, and now we hold it in our hands. And if we will let it, it can transform us, and it can give us the bearings that we need to navigate the world in which we live. So we come to this text with the intention of seeing Jesus, his heart, his heart for us, and who he is, but also practically looking for God's instruction on how, as a follower of Jesus, we are told to live. Amen? Amen. And that's why we're here. And last week, Zach took us through chapter 2. And we saw from this couple the deepening of their love for one another, their attempt to work through some doubts and difficulties that they had. We're taking this book at a a very literal stance. Um, There are pictures, and we're going to see Christ in the text, but we are going to take it as, as face value is that this is a man and a woman, and they're falling in love. And this is actually God's instruction manual and God's desire for us to see an up close. Uh, relationship in his word that's based um, from a relationship with God and how to do relationships and marriage in in the way that God intended it, right? Because it's, marriage is God's invention. God made it up as a blessing, as as something that God had given to us to, to be a blessing to our hearts in our lives. And so in inventing it, then he has a design for it, right? The guy who invented the Rubik's Cube (laughs) I I don't know where this is going, but he has a design in which it's to be used. I like to throw it. Um, It's the stupidest puzzle ever. They were on sale at Target. I bought two and I can't figure it out. I even looked up a YouTube video on how to do it and it escapes me. Anyway, so God invented marriage. God has a design for marriage and we've been just kind of going through this book, and and Zach's been teaching for the last three weeks, kind of showing us how these two, their love is growing and intensifying. Um, Last week, 
We looked at certain boundaries for, for relationships that we shouldn't act. I think the, one of the best, some of the best advice we could ever get is to not act like you're married till you're married, right? There are certain things that are reserved for marriage, not just sexually, but like in a lot of different ways, there are certain boundaries that should be in place that are just for married couples. Like you shouldn't buy each other a car. It's just wise. Like you shouldn't have a joint bank account. Like you shouldn't have a cell phone plan together because, you know, sometimes things don't work out. And then you have this car from your ex and how awkward is that? I'm sure you're fine, but like just, you know what I mean? There's certain things that you're like, you know, we shouldn't, there's certain things that are reserved for a married couple. And, and that's a good boundary to have. Those are things that are, are smart to have. We also learned that Marvin Gaye was right. There are, <laughs> sorry, that love creates a determination in all of us. That love causes us to see obstacles and inconveniences differently because of love. And love tells us that there is no inconvenience that I'm not willing to go through to have it. And I think Jesus is a prime example of that. He was clothed in flesh, born of a virgin, endured puberty for crying out loud. He could have came after that. Uh, ninth grade was a, a terrifying year in my life, personally. Like if you could skip that, I think all of us would be like, yeah, let's do that. Let's just, anywho, skip that. Try being a redhead over 200 pounds in high school, like as a freshman. That's, that's tough. That's, that's really hard. You're just like setting yourself up to be humiliated every single day. Um, anyway, Jesus experienced that. He experienced hard work. He's a carpenter. And if you go to Israel and you realize there's not a whole lot of wood around, there's rocks, everything's made of rocks. So Jesus was not only a carpenter, a lot, of believe, a lot of commentators believe he was also a mason. He worked with rocks and with his hands. He endured hard work. He also endured and experienced heartache, betrayal, gruesome, a gruesome death, and the pain of being separated from the Father as he hung upon the cross. Why? Why did Jesus go through all this? Why all the obstacles? Because of love. Because he loved us. The Bible tells us that because of his great love, he endured the cross. Okay, this is something that, that is, is pictured for us in Jesus Christ. And this is what love does to us. It, it sees um, inconveniences and difficulties as no big deal because it's worth um, the pain. It's worth the suffering sometimes. And that's why in Song of Solomon chapter 8, it says... Set me as a seal upon your heart. In verses 6 and 7. This is the theme verse of the entire book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes are flashes of fire in the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. It's an explanation of the strength of love. It's, it's consuming like a fire in that it engulfs everything. It, it describes its power and its value. And tonight we're going to be seeing the intensity of love and sexual desire that grows between these two, and we're going to see their wedding ceremony. They're about to get married. So next week, it's going to get a little uh, crazier, um, but tonight, things are, are pretty tame. In verse 1, 
of chapter three, it says, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The New English translation, the NET, which I read and it made a lot more sense. Listen to this. It says, all night, uh, all night long on my bed, I longed for my lover. I longed for him, but he never appeared. Okay, so what we're describing, what she's describing for us is there's going to be a nightmare that follows. As she's there just in her house, she's going to bed, she's thinking about him, and she wishes he was there. She's longing for their wedding, but suddenly she falls asleep and she has this dream. And when it says on my, on my bed, it's more of a dream than actually happening. Some say that this actually took place in different commentators. I believe that she's having a nightmare. She's having a dream. And she's dreaming and she has this, this nightmare that comes up. Look what it says later on. I will rise now, I said in verse 2, and go about the city in the streets and in the squares and I will seek the one I love. And I saw him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me and I said, have you seen the one I love? And scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love and I held him and would not let him go. She has this dream where... She's roaming about the city asking everyone, have you seen Solomon? Have you seen my man? Um, <laughs> sorry. Have you seen this guy? Like, and, and no one is answering her. Just silence. Like no one's speaking to her. And she goes from person to person. And, and there's this real fear in her heart of like, where is he? I can't find him anywhere. And suddenly he appears in, in the city and she grabs hold of him and she just won't let go of him. And what's materializing, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you're dealing with something so, so gnarly in your own life that it materializes in your, in your brain while you sleep. Has that ever happened to you? You dream about it? Aren't dreams the trippiest thing? Whereas, okay, never mind. I don't want to be too, too. But there was a time in my life um, where like, I had a dream that um, I did something awful. And I lost my job, I lost my wife, she left me, took all the kids. And, and it was just like this, it felt so real. I ever had those dreams where like, this is real. This is super real. And I woke up and everyone was gone in my house. And I just began to like weep on the side of my bed because it felt like, oh my gosh, I ruined my life. It actually happened. It, I can't believe this. And all of a sudden I hear like one of my kids like screaming and I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's just a dream. But if that's ever happened to you, man, it is, it's a freaky thing. Where all of a sudden just all the emotion and anxiety and, and you're just terrified of something that you thought happened. Or, or I know this has happened to, to my wife and I where we're upset with each other. But it never really happened. It was a dream. And we're like fighting. We're like, we don't even know why we're fighting. I'm like, I can't believe you did that. She's like, I never did that. Oh, yes, you did. You called me fat. And she's like, I've never called you fat. I'm like, I felt it. But it happened in a dream. It was all in a dream. It's the weirdest thing, right? But what's, what's transcribing is that she has a real insecurity here of losing him. And the fear of losing him is not just a, a fear that, that, that he's not emotionally connected, but there's a real fear of like, I can't live without, without him. And what, what's being discovered here is that there's a love that, that is transcending all things. Like this is a deep love that she has to where it, it's like our lives are connected. And without you, I don't want to live. There's this real fear within her that she's going to lose him. 
And she's reaching this point of like, I don't want to live without you, which is a vulnerable place to be, isn't it? But I hope you understand something tonight, that vulnerability is, although scary, it is necessary for there to be intimacy. If you are unwilling to be honest and vulnerable with your flaws and your fears and to be honest with that person who you should be able to tell everything to, right? We talked about a few weeks ago, like the trust that, that Solomon builds into the Shulamite's life as he just convinces her with his words of, of the fact that, hey, you're safe with me. Like everything about you, I adore, I love. You can tell me anything and nothing's gonna change that. There is safety within my arms. And, and he's already creating this space for her in which she feels safe with him, that he's not gonna harm her. But listen, there is a real sense. I don't know if you've ever come to that place of vulnerability where I could get clobbered. Like I, this, I'm in this so far, all my chips are in, everything's into this thing and I'm full on honest. I'm telling you everything, you know, everything. And, and listen, if, if this doesn't go well, there's an opportunity for me to be clobbered. But if you refuse to come to that place, you will never experience true love like this. The, the marriage relationship is intended for there to be complete and total vulnerability with one another. And that is what creates intimacy. Sex does not create intimacy. It is a culmination of intimacy by knowing someone personally. Um, sex, when you remove it, when, it's, when you re remove the personal side of it from that person, what, what that creates is a facade of intimacy. When it becomes purely physical and there's nothing else connecting, what that gives is a facade of, of intimacy, but in reality, you are missing what real intimacy is. And so she becomes extremely vulnerable at this point of like, if I lose you, I'm, I'm gonna lose it. But let me tell you something as well. Just, just it, is, it is so worth it. If you've ever come to that place of like, even if I get clobbered, it's worth it to find out. Like, is this real? Is this true? And in order to do that, there is a vulnerability. Even, I love that song, Rock of Ages. When it talks about Jesus, the Rock of Ages, cleft for me. There's a vulnerability in which Jesus allowed himself to be cut, right? He, he allowed himself to be cut. His skin opened, his blood poured out, and we hide within. The, 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 the words of the song talk about us hiding within that cleft rock, that cut rock. And under, under, his, under his wings, under him, we are hidden in Christ. It's such a beautiful song. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus allowed himself to be vulnerable that he would even to the place of being cut open, his blood spilled out that we might have a place to hide in him. That is intimacy. That is love. Where you allow yourself even to that place of being heard. And let me just tell you something. If you choose to live a life with someone, a man or a woman, you know which order they go in. You don't have to specify. But it, whatever you find a spouse, let me tell you something. You will be cut by that person. You will be damaged by that person. Because often the people that we love most are the people that we hurt the most. The people that we are so close to and that we love the most, there is opportunity, although we don't intend to, we will. We will. 
But it's worth it. It's worth it. That's why the Bible talks about how we are two sinners in one house. Man, it's worth it because the blood of Christ covers it. The blood of Christ is with us. There's a reality to the fact that you will harm the people that you love the most because we're sinners. And in any relationship, there needs to be this element of great grace for one another because there is such vulnerability. And and let me just say this. (laughs) I I feel like I keep prefacing everything. Um, I don't know why. Um, If you're dating someone, and you're like, yeah, we've been going out for a couple weeks. Now's not the time to be vulnerable like that. Remember what we, we talked about earlier, guarding the heart. They're at this place. Remember Zach Tyler last week. We, they're engaged to be engaged. Like we're all in this thing. So they're at that stage. This isn't like a few weeks and you're like, I'm super vulnerable. The Bible says guard your heart with all diligence, right? Be careful um, who you give your heart to. So she can't find him. Maybe she can't find him emotionally. Like, hey, are you still in this thing? I need to hear from you again. I need to hear your voice. But she seeks and she finds him. When we read the word, we're constantly reminded that when we seek the Lord, we will find him. That Jesus never hides from us. That as we seek his presence and we seek the Lord, we're seeking his presence and it's it's this desire to know him in, in, in a way that, that I need your presence. I'm seeking that. And, and the Bible tells us, ask, seek, knock, and it will be open to you. Like, seek God and you will find him. But let me just talk, let's talk about that for just a minute. As she seeks her love and she finds him and she lays hold of him. As we seek the Lord, there's two truths of his presence tonight that we want to look at. Aren't his children always in his presence? Let me talk about the presence of God in our life. Like we, we rejoice that he's always with us, correct? Yes, you know, yes, yes. I understand that was rhetorical, but thank you. Some of you are, are falling asleep. So yes, in two senses, right? The first is in the sense that God is omnipresent. And therefore, always near everything and everyone. He holds everything in his being. His power is ever present, is sustaining and governing all things. So theologically, yes, God is always near. His presence is always near because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's he's in everything. God, we cannot escape him. We learn from the book of Jonah, you cannot run from God's presence. Like he will find you. He sees you, not in a creepy like Santa way, but God knows you and he can find you. You cannot hide from his presence. The psalmist said, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? Like though I descend into hell itself, you are there. Like there's nowhere I can go. Even in the belly of a fish, you find me there. Right? So yes, we understand. First of all, God's omnipresence, he's everywhere, he's, in, he's near everything, and he's near everyone. Secondly, he is always present with his children in the sense of his covenant commitment to always stand by us and to work for us and to turn everything for our good. The Bible says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a promise of God. 
And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So in those two senses, his omnipresence and his covenant commitment to you to never leave you, he is always present. So when is he not? There are times when God's manifest, conscious, trusted presence is not our constant experience, is it? There are seasons when we become neglectful of God and give him no thought and do not put trust in him and we find him unmanifested. Like, I don't feel your presence. God, are you everywhere at all times? We know theologically, yes, that is true. I'm a child of God. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. I know that. But why don't I feel his presence then? Why don't I, I sense it in this moment? That is unperceived as great and beautiful, that his presence is not perceived as great and beautiful and valuable by the eyes of our hearts. His face, the brightness of his personal character is hidden behind the curtain of our carnal desires. And this condition is always ready to overtake us. That is why we are told in scripture, seek his presence continually. That God calls us to enjoy continually consciousness of his supreme greatness and beauty and worth Psalm 105 verse 4 says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. And here's the good news to the child of God. Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, and the good news is that we will be found. You will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Matthew 7 Verses 7 and 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. And here the Shulamite is searching and seeking and she finds him. And notice what she does next. Man, she clings on like stage five clinger. (laughs) Stage five. She holds on. She holds on. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon had some really interesting thoughts on this. He said, if you are willing to lose Christ's company, he is never intrusive. He will go away from you and leave you till you know his value and begin to pine for him. I will go, says he, and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their afflictions, they will seek me early. He will go unless you hold him. Interesting thought. And the point that that I think Spurgeon is making is, number one, that Jesus is willing to be held. He is not trying to escape us. But he, being a gentleman, will not intrude into your life. If that's not what you want to hold on to and you want to loosen your grip and grab something else, Jesus won't force you. And Jesus can be held. Secondly, that Jesus can be held and we can grasp him by faith, by simple faith. And the last thing is that Jesus himself must be held, not merely a creed, a tradition, or a ceremony, but Christ himself. And that is what we seek. And that's what we're after, is the person of Jesus Christ. And when we come to his word, that's what we're seeking, not just a love story, but the Christology within it. What does this tell me about Jesus? Jesus, what do you want me to know about you? How, what do you want me to know about yourself that I might hold on to you more? But I love the thing that Paul said. 
Paul says, I want to lay hold of Christ in the same way that he has laid hold of me. Amen? And so she lays hold of her lover, and she will not let him go. Stage five, clinging, like this is not happening. Now, when you read the next few verses, this is where things get a little intense. She says, until I had brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And you're like, yeah, what does that mean? Exactly. What do you think it means? I'm not really asking, but I, there's some different thoughts. Like she finally brings him home to meet her parents, right? Like this is my mom and this is my dad and this is my uncle Steve and like we're going to play backgammon. You want to play? And like the family kind of get together, right? But I think it means is that she's, she's, they're coming to the end of their courtship. Or, or as one person in this group called it, dorting. Dating and courting. Dorting. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I won't say your name out loud. I'm, I'm t what she's saying is like, we're coming to the end. I'm tired of waiting. I'll wait, but I'm tired of it. Right? Anyone ever done that? Like, I'm sick of waiting. I'm going to wait because I have no choice. And that's all I can do. But I just want everyone to know, sick of it. Super sick of it. Tired of it. I hate it. This is awful. I was engaged for a year, by the way. It's the worst idea ever. I was dating the same girl who is now my wife for five years. Five. And we were engaged for a year. It's a terrible idea. But we waited. I hated it. I was sick of it. But we did it. Anyway. Maybe she's saying, like, I'm, I desire to make a home. Like, I want my own house. I'm tired of living with my parents. Can I get an amen? Okay. I'm tired of living at home. Like, I want to have my own house and my own things. And I just want to nest, right? I want to hang out my own pictures. I'm really thinking of this, like, you know, um, <laughs> what is that style? That's like uh, Scandinavian. I'm really into Scandinavian right now. <laughs> Which is basically, like, code for Ikea. Um, or she's literally saying, and this is what I think she is saying. I am ready to take him into my baby-making chamber. <laughs> that is literally what she is saying. Like, I'm at this point of, like, I was so afraid to lose him that I'm here right now, and, and I'm not, we're not leaving until I take him into the chamber where babies are made. Right? You read that. Until I brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. What, what chamber? Where are we talking about? There's a room where babies are conceived. She says, and that's where I want to be. Woo! What's happening? She's talking about the intensity of love. Like it's, it's intensifying to a degree like that I can't, I can't, I, I need some help. And look what she says next. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does she say? Be careful. This is like the third or fourth time she's used this warning. She's, she says, we're this close to the wedding. It seems like there's even more of an opportunity and temptation to get physical, but we're going to preserve that purity. I, I don't know what happens, but there's a time where, like, you have all the accountability in the world, right? You have your, your friend who's, like, your buddy, and you're like, don't leave my side. If she's around, you stay. Like, stay. No matter what I say, don't you leave. And you're like, it's cool. You can leave. And he's like, all right. You're like, what are you doing? Like, you're, you, I need you. Like, don't move. It, it's, it never fails. It's like the last month, you're getting ready to be married. Here it comes. And all of a sudden, everyone's gone and it's dark instantly. And you're like, ah! <laughs> like, like, what are we doing in the same room? Oh my gosh. It, it's 
it's insane. Everyone's like, you guys probably want some alone time. You're like, no, I really don't. I don't want some alone time. I, I feel sick to my stomach. Like, we cannot, it's not going to happen. Please don't leave us alone. Ah! It's my translation. <laughs> but she tells her friends, like, remember she told them earlier, like, you guys have to help me. I'm lovesick. Like, I need carbs now. And, and, and like, help me, distract me, keep me accountable. We have to understand as the church, a lot of this like purity culture is sometimes toxic, but, but we're here to keep each other accountable and above reproach. That it is not just a reality that we talk about in theory, but it is a real possibility. Even in this culture that we live in, even in a culture that, that preaches something completely different because that's their gospel. And so they're going to preach that all day long. But Jesus tells us intimacy has nothing to do with just sex, not just a body. But there's so much more that goes into it. If you will wait and you will be patient, man, it'll rock. God's way is a blessed way. But there's a change here in perspective to the spectator's perspective. Look what it says in verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? <laughs> like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant power. Like she just starts, who is this man who comes forth like smoke backdrop, just coming out? It's just this overwhelming scent that hits her of like, Axe body spray, and she's like, Who is this? Oh my, is what she said. I am taken back. Woo! She sees something coming out of the woods, and she's like, Yes. Now, in the Bible, in the Bible, the wilderness is often spoke of, it's a time of testing and preparation, right? Children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was in the wilderness tending sheep for 40 years. Jesus went into the wilderness and after he was baptized uh, or went through a time of testing for 40 days. John, or JTB, John the Baptist, lived in the wilderness. So what is she saying? We have come through this time of testing. Like this dating relationship, it's been a time of trial and error. We're... <coughs> I haven't taught for a while, so like my vocal cords have retracted. Um, uh, uh, so we have come through the, this time of testing. She's saying we've we've come through it. Like I'm seeing this guy who who I've been watching his life, and he's we've been testing this out, and she's like, who is this guy? He's been refined. Look at, look at the, the, the smoke. Smoke often in the Bible is, is spoken of the glory of God. And um, she says, we, we've listened to counsel. We've had moments of doubt and frustration. And now we've come to this day. This is their wedding day. And she's saying, who is this guy? Like, wow, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm so thankful that we waited. I'm thankful that we dated the right way. I'm thankful that, that now I see that God has refined this guy and I'm ready to be his wife. Exodus 19, talking about pillars of smoke, it says, now Mount Sinai 
was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Isaiah 6.4, it says, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Pillars of smoke often speak of the glory of God. And that's what a wedding day is to be. It is a day not only in which we celebrate, but it's a day in which we give God glory, right? It is an opportunity for these people to give God glory for what God has done. Love is a miraculous thing. This is a miraculous thing that takes place where you find someone that A, you can stand more than five minutes and B, that you have fallen so in love with that you're willing to give up things that you never thought you were willing to give up. I sold my truck, people. <laughs> just, just sold it. It was, the, it was my, and I know it sounds stupid, and my wife knows this, this was my dream truck. I've wanted this car since I was 18 years old. It was my dream. And she got pregnant with our fourth kid, and I said, I got to sell this thing. And I sold it. Why? Because I love my wife. It's, it's so stupid, right? It's just a truck. It's just a car. It's just a thing. But listen, love does crazy things to you. Where you are willing, suddenly, what does this teach us? It teaches us about God, who is willing to sacrifice his own son. For what? For a minivan, like me and you. Like he's willing to sacrifice for us. Like put off glory, put on flesh, which Jesus then embodies for all of eternity. He bears the scars of the cross. That sacrifice, it teaches us about God and his love. And this is what is to be given to God as glory unto God. When two people miraculously find each other who love Jesus and say, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And everything else I deem important in my life has now taken a backseat to you. And I will do everything, right? Promises are made. I will do everything within my power to make sure that you are taken care of. No matter what. My happiness comes second to yours. It teaches us of the sacrifice of God, the love of God, and marriage is a day in which we give God glory because of what God did for us. It's an opportunity. The wedding reminds us and speaks of the relationship that God has with his church. Now, I want to pause here for a second. What time is it? Are you guys okay? Everyone all right? We got some more things to go over. Are you going to be okay? Shake it out. Shake it out if you need to. Readjust your seat. Move around. Stretch. Whatever you got to do. It's not going to hurt my feelings. Matthew 24, 36. This is interesting. And this verse has always given me kind of one of those head-scratching verses. Jesus speaking, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, speaking of the return of Christ, the second coming of Jesus, nor the Son, but the Father only. The Father only. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. The son does not know the day or the hour. Only the father knows. You're going, what in the world? What if, if Jesus is God, then how come there is something that he doesn't know that only the father knows? Listen, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride didn't know when her husband would come. Much of the focus then was on the groom, right? Nowadays, no one even cares if the guy shows up, right? 
They're like, oh, there's this guy. But they're like, there's the pride, right? It's always opposite. She would have to be prepared. There, was a, there were signs of the coming, but there was, there was this need in which she had to be prepared. She didn't know when he would come. And while she waited for the groom to come, where was he and what was he doing? He wasn't just like picking his belly button, like trying to figure things out. He's like, do I like her? I don't know. It's probably an arranged marriage anyway. He has no choice. Anyway, here's the point. Predestined. Anyway, um, we're not even going to, I shouldn't have said that. Here we go. <laughs> what would he be doing? He would build on his father's house. He would prepare a place for him and his wife to live. Okay. That's what he would be doing. Jesus made mention of this in the parable of the 10 virgins and also in John chapter 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, right? He says, he tells this parable of, the, of these virgins that need to be ready. Their, their lamps need to be trimmed because they don't know when their groom's going to come. He then tells a story that, that um, he tells us in John chapter 14 that where I go, you cannot come right now, but where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I am there, you can be also, right? But he doesn't know the day or the hour. In the Jewish wedding, the father only knew. The father was the only one who knew and would give word to the son and the son would go get his bride. That's how the Jewish wedding worked out. So when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, the son of man does not know, he is waiting to come get his bride. And as soon as the father says so, he's going. Isn't that cool? This verse always gave me such a hard time. Like, how did, ha, Trinity, uh, what are you talking about? Here it is. But I find it interesting that the king came to his bride. But nowadays, right? If you read on in this text, it, it talks about him coming to his bride. Nowadays, the, the, a lot of times the groom will just stand at the front and the bride will come walking down the aisle, right? Everyone stands for her. She's the most important thing in the room. The guy's just there and a part of it. But everyone stands for the bride. Notice that First, the groom came for his bride. And here on this side of it, here we are in modern day, the bride comes to the groom. Jesus came for us, came to this earth, came to receive his bride unto himself so that someday as he goes to prepare a place for us, he will call the bride to himself at the second coming. We'll meet him in the sky. Isn't that cool? Now, you may think that's quite a stretch, Pastor Andrew. I don't even care. I don't even care what you think. What an amazing God that not only would he come to us, but he would then bring us to himself. And that's God's desire is that we might be with him. Our king came to us so that, we could, that he could bring us to him at his second coming. And the ceremony itself, the wedding ceremony here, it brings glory to God. But look at what it says in verse 7. Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. Now, speaking of the men that were carrying this, um, this palaquin that he was on, riding on, right? And the men would be carrying him down through the road. Uh, at, you know, we've seen a palaquin. There's someone sits inside and then these men. It's not just four guys carrying it. There's 60 guys carrying it. And they all have swords, being experts in war, every man has a sword in, on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin, and he made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Notice, this guy is prepared. 
I love this about Solomon. He was prepared. He built himself a palanquin, whatever the heck that is, right? But he took time. It was intricate. He made sure that everything was in place. He wasn't passive on the wedding. He took it seriously, and he prepared himself for marriage. He's like, I got to prepare this thing. This is a big deal. He was prepared. Listen, guys, lust is not the greatest battle a man will face. His greatest battle will be passivity. It will always be the thing that we fight against. It's not just lust itself, but the temptation to passively lead your family. Take a back seat and let your wife do all the work. That is not what we are called to do. As capable, listen, as capable as she may be, as, as incredibly smarter than you. That's not even a sentence. If she's so much smarter and manlier and stronger than you, that is still not her calling. It's God's calling upon your life to lead. Your greatest battle will not just be lust itself. It will always be the temptation to take a backseat and let someone else do the work that you're supposed to do. That is what we have to fight against. I know in my life, it is. My wife is so much smarter than me. She understands finances. She understands like raising children. She understands patience. She's on top of it. She's a planner. She's a scheduler. She's a calendar. And I'm like, sick, tell me where to go. And I'll show up. And meanwhile, she's doing everything else. And I'm like, yeah, I'm tired. It's like, I'm an idiot. I think it's not that you override that, but are you invested in it? Like, are you a part of it? Or you simply like, ah, oh, she'll take care of it. No big deal. I'm just going to be a child. We're not supposed to be children. There is a position of leader, but there is also action of leadership that we're called to. But notice that it's inlaid with love, man. When we get into a relationship like this, we enter into not a contract, but a covenant. Contract says you you know, you have a cell phone bill, right? If you pay this amount of money, we keep your service running, right? You pay your car payment, we will let you keep the car. It's kind of a big, kind of a thing, right? A lot of people treat relationships like a contract. You give me what I need, and the minute that you don't, our contract is void. We rip this up. God calls us into covenant, which means no matter what is given, whatever is given in return, I am called to give 100%. That's covenant. I made promises. I will keep those promises regardless of what comes back. That's covenant love. And this is what it was paid with. Their, their whole life was going to start not on a contract, but it was starting on a, a covenant-type love. In verse 11, go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with his crown, with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of his gladness of heart. Now, who was the mother of Solomon? Does anyone know? Bathsheba, right? She's quite famous, <laughs> has a reputation. Um, but that was his mom, right? And, and you know her story. Her day was not like this. Her wedding day was not like this. You, if you remember the story, uh, she was seduced by King David. She became pregnant. And then King David then killed her husband and married her to look like a nice guy. So her whole relationship with, with David and the father of Solomon was one filled with scandal. 
And here she is on this day, crowning the next king over Israel, who's met the love of his life. And what we, what we find, I think, from this is she's rejoicing for her son. To see God take the mess of her life and the mess that she had gotten into, that they had made, and to bring something beautiful out of it. And that is what Jesus came to do. Came to redeem our life and to use our mistakes to bring him glory. There's redemption um, in the blood of Jesus Christ. He redeems our mistakes. He redeems your bad relationships. He redeems our, our bad decisions. If we will surrender them to the Lord and say, God, you have a plan. And I surrender it to you. There was a story in the book of Joshua where Joshua made a covenant with the Gibeonites. And they tricked him and all this stuff. And they're getting attacked. He signed a treaty with them. They're getting attacked. And at that point, Joshua's like, sick. They're going to get wiped out. Like, my tracks are getting covered. But that is not what Joshua does. Joshua marches through the night. He comes to the aid of the Gibeonites. And he fights a battle that he had signed a treaty to. And God, listen, what's so cool about that story is that Joshua had a decision to make. Either he could just let the mess continue to be a mess or he can invite God into his mess and say, God, I made a mistake, but I'm going to try and do what's right now. Right? And he did. He did what was right and God blessed it and God honored it. The difference, that, that, the, the difference of that was that he invited God into it. So many times we want to keep God out of our mess and be like, I'm going to fix this. And then once I get it fixed, then I'm like going to invite God in. That's this is backwards. Invite God into something that you can't fix and watch him transform it, watch him heal it, watch him make it new because that's who God is. Amen? Man, there's a lot of different themes tonight, a lot of different directions. You've been great. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, God, that you are a redeeming God that, Lord, you are capable and able of taking the messes that we make. And, God, you are able to redeem them for your kingdom and for your glory to make us more like you. And, Lord, even the story of Solomon and Bathsheba and to see, God, you bringing the Messiah from this line, from this family, from this family and the mess that they made, the Messiah, the, the one who would save the world, from their sins came from this family. And God, we're so thankful for that reminder that out of the mess, Lord, you can bring beauty. And all you ask of us is to surrender it to you, to be vulnerable with you, to be honest with you, to invite you into the mess that we've made and say, God, help me. And so Lord, we praise you for your goodness tonight. We praise you for your mercy. God, we pray for those that are navigating all this stuff and dating and, and life and jobs and careers and and uh, broken hearts and, and pain and difficulty. God, we pray that your word would be like that compass to our heart that shows us which way to go, that gives us a bearing, that gives us a heading, Lord. And so, Lord, those that are being rocked by the storm and being tossed to and fro and just feel like the world is spinning around them while they sit still, God, I pray that you would meet them in that stillness and, Lord, that you'd bring clarity to their minds, clarity to their heart, clarity to their soul. Be with them in the midst of it, God. 
And so, Lord, we lift this up to you. We lift this time of worship unto you. And Lord, we pray that we would, God, be, use the time to, to be vulnerable and honest with you, Lord. We thank you that there's nothing that surprises you. You're not shocked by the things that we say or the things that we do. God, you desire to be close and near. And so, Lord, as we spend this time just seeking your face, God, we pray that we would see your face. That everything else in our life would fade into the, in comparison to the glory of the presence of God. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. And uh, we give you the rest of this night. In Jesus' name, amen.